0: My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway murders Facebook group together with Kristen Dilley.
1: My name is Kristen Dilly. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Welcome to Mind Over Murder. I'm Kristen Dilly,
0: And I'm Bill Thomas.
1: And we're joined today by Andrea Langford, here to talk to us about her book, Trail of the Lost, The Relentless Search to Bring Home the Missing Hikers of the Pacific Crest Trail. Andrea, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Go ahead and start by telling our listeners about your new book and ultimately why you decided to write it. Trail of the Lost came out
2: last August 2023. It is about three hikers who went missing for the Pacific Crest Trail, and my journey to try to figure out why. I started writing the book in November 2017, and I embedded myself with a group of amateur sleuths and searchers. For five years, we did our darndest to try to solve this mystery, I also defended the families of the missing people. And so this book is a big journey of showing what the things I learned and saw during that research.
0: Tell us a little bit about what happens when a hiker goes missing in a national park. Most of us go to national parks, have a wonderful time. We might interact with the rangers and other staff. But for the most part, except for maybe asking directions or attending a workshop, most of our interactions with the National Park Service rangers and staff are not emergencies. What happens when a hiker goes missing?
2: Now, when you're a park ranger, you usually refer to this as an overdue hiker. And you can get reports of overdue hikers several times a day, definitely several times a week if you work at a busy park like the Grand Canyon or Yosemite. And usually what will happen is a friend will say, hey, Joe went hiking in the Grand Canyon. He didn't show up for work or he didn't show up, meet us for dinner tonight. And when the ranger gets that type of report, we are trained to treat this as an emergency because there's a good chance this hiker is in trouble somewhere in the wilderness and needs your help right away. So the ranger starts to investigate and ask questions and maybe assign someone to be an investigator. You also will often send a hasty, what you call a hasty team. And a hasty could be rangers on foot or it could be jumping in a helicopter and flying to where you think this person may be in trouble. The other thing that a ranger needs to do when they get an overdue hiker case is contain the search area. And containing the search area can involve setting up a roadblock or having somebody at the trailhead to make sure the person doesn't hike out of the search area without you knowing it.
1: So Andrea, you said that overdue hikers happen on the daily. How many times, how many occasions do we have in which people have gone missing in national parks and just have not been found? Do we have a number on that? There is a number that
2: gets thrown around It's probably an underestimate because the federal government has not done a good job across jurisdictions like your U.S. Forest, your National Park Service, your other wilderness lands of tracking this. But the number that gets thrown around is 1,600 hikers have gone missing and stayed missing in our national parks. Now, of the overdue hiker, one thing that's interesting is around 97% of those cases are resolved within 24, 48 hours. The person is usually found alive. Sometimes the body is recovered. So it is rare, but there's still a pretty big number, 1,600, even if as an underestimate, that's a pretty big number of unsolved cases.
0: I know it's hard to generalize. Of the 97%, which is a pretty happy statistic, of hikers that are found, what are some typical reasons for why they? were overdue if what are the classic explanations as i'm sure lots of different things happen but what are fairly typical things that happen to a hiker and then he or she is later found
2: yeah it really runs the gamut the best is they just overextended their self and they are just not out yet they're still walking hiking limping maybe when they just haven't got out another is they get lost and they're wandering around lost another they fall and or they fall into hypothermia and they're either injured or they've passed away. And so usually it's an environmental thing, an accident of some kind. The scarier ones are, every once in a while, it's foul play. Also, on occasion, it's a voluntary disappearance where they actually are either pretending to be missing or they are contemplating suicide mm-hmm. or they're not even in the area that you're searching them. They're off having, you know, a bender or something. That <laughs> Those voluntary disappearances do happen on occasion.
0: I think of the proximity of Grand Canyon National Park in Las Vegas. Having combined uh, visits to those two areas in the same vacation, I think that would be unusual, wouldn't it, if someone said, oh, I went to the Grand Canyon, but in reality, I took a side trip to Las Vegas and went on a bender?
2: Yes, I worked at Grand Canyon about four years, and we would make jokes about people being in Vegas, the Rangers, but I don't think I ever had a case where they actually weren't in the park. So that is rare. The interesting, when I was researching trail of the loss, there seems, and you'll hear families of the missing talk about this. And it seems to be something more like the county agencies do where they, especially if a young male goes missing, they just, the cops have a tendency to assume they're doing this on purpose. And that's very frustrating for the family because the family will be like, oh no, not my son. He would be home. He would call his mom, things like that. And that bias, I think, could be a problem in my experience from researching the book.
1: When someone does go missing in the wilderness and you have to send out a search team for them, whether that's in the Grand Canyon or Yosemite, what are some of the issues that face NPS rangers and rescue personnel when they're out looking for someone who's gone missing?
2: You've got vast wilderness, treacherous areas often People go missing when the weather, when there's a big storm. There's an avalanche situation on in Tahoe. Palosite is Tahoe right now. It's white out, and they've got people buried in the snow. So not only is that just hard to search for people, it's also hazardous for the searchers. You also have staffing. Most SAR agencies, search and rescue agencies, and definitely the National Park Service is understaffed. Mm-hmm. You also have triage issues because... Let's say you've got three people buried in an avalanche, and then you got five skiers who fell and, and broke bones over here. And so you have to triage how you're going to respond, like in a mash casualty situation. So those are some biggies. Another is cooperation. Or sometimes these areas are in more than one jurisdiction. So are the agencies cooperating with each other to help get these people found?
0: You mean adjoining lands where you may be leaving a national park and entering a state park or some other preserve? How does one end up in one place versus another?
2: Yes, it's that's exactly it. one of the issues that I write about. At trail loss is with one of the missing hikers, Chris Fowler. He went missing in Washington State in the mm-hmm. Pacific Crest Trail. This is a long trail. Yeah, it's twenty five hundred plus miles. And so it goes through numerous counties, three states, and two countries. And a thru-hiker is out there for months. And so they're crossing jurisdictions on an hourly basis sometimes. So in the Chris Fowler case, what happened, it was real easy for the agencies to go, he's on in my county, he's in your county, no, he's in that county, he's in that county. And so the family was having to do a runaround, a bureaucratic runaround with five different counties to try to get someone to initiate a search. And that was very frustrating to them. And I write about that in Trail of
1: Loss. Oh, I was absolutely appalled by that when I read that section. That's unbelievable. Let's turn our attention very briefly to crime in national parks, which is something that is a concern for both of us. So what are the numbers like when we think about crime in national park? Is that something that happens terribly often? What are the numbers for crime like in national parks? Unfortunately,
2: we don't really know. One, we've got jurisdictional issues. You have some parks like Yosemite. The rangers have exclusive jurisdiction. And Yosemite, you could probably go there and get pretty good numbers of what the crime rates is. But other parks, it's shared with the county. And so a lot of numbers could get lost in the system. Mm -hmm. So I'm going off of experience. And so from my experience of ranger, it's definitely more than people think. But it's probably less than it and your home like driving to your workplace or going to the mall so it's probably less than that but it's more than what you think it's
1: still it's a problem still there's we would want no
2: crime and no foul play in the national parks would be the perfect preference
1: is there a database somewhere where all of these incidences of crime in national parks is stored if there is
2: i can't find it and so i don't like i said you could probably call yosemite and maybe they'd make you have a what where you have to ask for uh, information public information requests you could probably get some good numbers out of a park like yosemite but over the system as a whole they exist i can't find it
1: wow
0: you're not the only national park service employee or former employee that we've ever talked to who has brought this up so this has come up several times I don't want to bog the podcast down with this too much, but I will say some of the people that we've talked to have said they think this is deliberate on the part of the Park Service, that the Park Service wants to sell us something, which is the great outdoors and access to natural lands. And I get it how wonderful national parks are. At the same time, much like Disneyland or any other big operation, they don't want to focus on the fact that occasionally, it may be rare from an overall perspective, but sometimes bad things do happen inside national parks. It seems like the Park Service doesn't want to talk about it.
2: I've gotten the same feeling when I was a ranger at Yosemite. I, they assigned me to go with a news crew, and I was naive, and I just showed them what was happening. We went into the evidence. We looked at guns and drugs and took them on actual crime scenes. What I've heard is that the concession wasn't too happy with the story that came out because it was disturbing to viewers. That Oh, my gosh, there's a lot of crime going on in Yosemite. And that we were told to not talk about these things to the media anymore.
0: We've also found in the Colonial Parkway murders that we've gotten sometimes a distinct lack of cooperation in terms of access. Even several years back when we wanted to search for some missing persons who were part of the Colonial Parkway murders, we actually asked the National Park Service for permission to bring in cadaver dogs. And these are professionals and they know how to conduct a search with a very low impact. Boy, did they give us a tremendous amount of grief. It was one roadblock after another, to the point where all of the families involved were so exasperated with the National Park Service, I actually said, it feels like they're more concerned about the blades of grass in the Colonial Parkway National Park than they would be about the fact that we think several murders happened there, and our loved ones are still out there inside that national park, and they are doing everything they can to prevent us from looking for it. I think sometimes there's a very strong PR focus on the part of the park service.
2: Yeah, there's something there. I don't understand it. It does exist outside the park service as well. This is tangential to issues I discuss in tra- Trail to Wasps. For example, drones can be used to find, to work cold cases. They could do a grid photograph search, take photographs. Those photographs can be searched by humans that are called squinters because they're staring at the computer screen, searching images all day, and this has been successful but drones aren't allowed in a national park or wilderness areas or state parks. And and there's other cases where even the FAA has been problems with drone searchers in Texas, for example, just being too, they need to be, in my opinion, more flexible. When it comes to human life and suffering, uh, we can let let a blade of grass go on occasion.
0: Totally agreed.
1: I want to pivot to the subject of trail of the lost, which is um, the missing hikers on the PCT uh, I think most people have probably heard of the Appalachian Trail before, but there may not be people who are as familiar with the Pacific Crest Trail. Can you give a brief overview for anybody who's not familiar? What is the PCT?
2: The Pacific Crest Trail runs through Pacific Coast states, California, Oregon, and Washington. It goes from the Mexico border in California all the way up to the Canadian border in Washington. It's 2,500 miles, uh, more, a little bit more than that. And... People thru-hike it. Now, you guys, if you're thinking and you've read, you might understand why the numbers of people want to thru-hike the trail. And that's people wanting to go from A to B, go all the way to Canada to Mexico in one season. is since the release of Cheryl Strayed's memoir, Wild, in the movie starring Reese Mm -hmm. Witherspoon that came out in December 2014. So ever since that movie came out, the numbers of people wanting to do this have skyrocketed. They had to issue a permit system to curtail the numbers each day. And it's also a new kind of hikers are attracted to it. People who are seeking uh, a new life. People mm-hmm. are seeking spiritual growth, like Cheryl Strayed in her novel or her memoir. Not necessarily your hardy, I've climbed Mount Everest and K2 type people are hiking it. There's potential there for problems because people are hitting the trail a little bit naive. Mm-hmm. And the Pacific Crest Trail is very rugged and very remote. These are the, the Sierra, the North Cascades in Washington. These are very rugged, dangerous areas.
1: My boyfriend had done some hiking in the Sierras when he was in high school and lived in California. And when I told him about this section of the PCT, he was like, you could not pay me enough money to try to hike that. He was like, it's very rugged and very difficult. And he was teasing me. He was like, we can go out there sometime. I said, you know what? I, no, I think I'm good. <laughs> I think I'm good. Especially having read this I and looking at those photos, I got a sense of just how terribly imposing the sounds. So what drew you to the stories of Chris Sherpa Fowler, David O'Sullivan, and Christopher Sylvia? How did you have those come onto your radar, so to speak?
2: I heard about a case, the Chris Sylvia case. He was 28 years old and he was hiking the Pacific Coast Trail in 2015. And he vanished in February. And San Diego County, that's in Southern California, uh, they searched hard for him. They had dogs, Border Patrol agents, you name it, were out there trying to find him for five days. And then they eventually gave up. But his gear was found on the Pacific Crest Trail. And his circumstances reminded me of a case I had worked at the Grand Canyon of another young man in his 20s. And I had, I failed to find him. I was assigned as the search coordinator and I tried to coordinate the entire search effort. I didn't find the guy. And that bothered me. I had to uh, tell his husband that we were winding down, his father, excuse me, that we were winding down the search and it bothered me because it haunted me. So the Chris Sylvia case reminded me of that case so much. I just had a compassionate impulse and I called his family and asked for their blessing to open a pro bono investigation into that case. Now, from that case, I started to learn about the, I looked for patterns when investigating a the case and I learned there were two other young men who were missing from the Pacific Crest Trail. Three young men, one each year, three years in a row. And that struck me as uncanny. And so then I started to meet some of these amateur sleuths and I joined their effort and was just compelled to do my best alongside them to try to solve this mystery.
1: So I would say for me that one of the most intriguing parts of the book was reading about the people that you met online, some of you you eventually met in real life, um, who were dedicated to searching for Chris, Sherpa, and David. What would you say were some of the highlights for you of working with online researchers and what are some of the challenges as well that come along with that?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. What happened is I started to join the Facebook Missing Hiker groups and especially the Chris Fowler Missing Hiker group. And I was watching all these amateur searchers. And by amateurs, I just mean they're not professional searchers. They're professional people, a lot of them, but they don't search for, for a living. And to me, these Facebook missing hiker groups were like it's joining those is like walking into the saloon in the Wild West. Anything goes. You've got all kind of rowdy characters in there. Bitter squabbles are likely to break out at any time. It's a little rough and rowdy in there. But every once in a while, I'd see the saloon doors open at this crazy Facebook place, and a quiet hero would walk in. Somebody that had pure intentions just wanted to help this family find their missing loved one. And the first quiet, I write about a lot of these quiet heroes, but the first one that struck my interest was a woman named Kathy Tarr, she was near me in age. we were both in our mid-50s at the time, and she was in, had given up her summer to search for Chris Fowler in Washington, and she announced on Facebook she was going to drive all the way down to California to now initiate a search for David O'Sullivan, who went missing about 52 trail miles north of where Chris Sylvia went missing in Southern California. She was going to be there searching for David Sol, but at the same time, I was going to be there searching for Chris Sylvia. So I begged her to meet me for dinner, and we started talking. And you could say, once I met Kathy Tarr, I was hooked. I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn what happened to the missing and other families, but I also wanted to learn more about this Facebook missing hiker group phenomena. I wanted to learn more about how the internet is affecting hiker culture. And so that's where the book was born.
0: Now, I have a perception, and I'm probably wrong here, that in a lot of our wilderness areas, there's no cell service. And so I was intrigued by this idea that there were Facebook missing hiker groups and that they were using social media as a way of communicating what they were up to, what they were hoping to do in terms of searching for missing hikers. So social media actually has had a significant impact on, as you put it, hiker culture. What are some of the ways things are changed or impacted by new technology?
2: So, with the so we're going to stay maybe uh, in a lot of ways, right? We even know about the selfie phenomenon where I call it the fatal selfie, right? They're trying to get a a sexy selfie on the edge of the cliff and they slip and fall. Yeah. It's it's very tragic. Yeah, it's very sad. But in this missing hiker world, Facebook is both a blessing and a curse. It'll bring in false leads, it'll bring in catfishers who are trying to get money out of the family. It'll all these fights, people will get on there and argue, people will say negative things. But it also will bring positive, it'll bring support, it'll bring awareness, it'll bring in good leads. And in my book, Facebook proves to be a very powerful investigative tool that I couldn't imagine using when I was looking for my missing hiker in the Grand Canyon in nineteen ninety-five. A clue is found via Facebook. Uh, Morgan Clements, were the amateur searchers, and Kathy Tarr that I write about, they prove that a witness statement is false using Facebook. It
1: just blows the lid off.
2: There's just all good and negative things happening in both hiker world and the missing person world via social media.
1: And as I was reading this, I, I was definitely seeing some of the same things that you do in your missing hiker social media groups. We have the same sorts of dynamics on the pages that we run for the colonial parkway murders case so this was all looking very familiar at certain points and we too have our quiet heroes we have our rabble rousers and we do get the people who are like i have this big extravagant lead but it pans out to nothing so this was a very interesting book for me to read and compare the two experiences
0: you're listening to mind over murder we'll be right back after this word from our sponsors
1: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: We're back here at Mind Over Murder.
1: You had talked a couple of minutes ago about drone technology, and that was one of the things that I was most interested in hearing you talk about here how has technology like drones helped search and rescue teams and rangers in locating missing people in hard to search areas? Earlier on, I talked
2: about your hasty search, right? This is when you just shoot out a helicopter or you shoot out some runners, some humans, or some dogs, maybe, to go find this missing person. And they are using drones in that way and to find people in real time. And this can work well if you've got a person going, waving their arms on a mountaintop. The drone can find them. Or when they use infrared thermal imagery. And so they can find a live person because they're warmer than the environment where my book focuses on it is with cold case drone searching mm-hmm. and so uh, with a cold case drone search this is very esoteric at this point and but i also feel very promising and there are only a handful or less of teams trying to improve this technique and so with a cold case drone grid search is you send a very good high quality drone with a drone pilot that's a extremely good problem solver and they've got a search area mapped out in gps they do it on the computer software and the drone flies a grid it like a lawnmower back and forth and the drone is taking photographs along that grid you will come back with thousands of photographs now they have software that searches but today it's just not as good as what humans can do this is very tedious if I had mentioned already, they call these humans that view these images squinters.
0: I love that. Because they're
2: squinting at their computer screens so much.
0: Squinters. And
2: they're very dedicated. Yeah, the squinters are very dedicated, hardworking people. And so they are searching these images, looking uh, for clothing, equipment, gear, even bones. This is a little bit of a spoiler, but in the book, this ends up working. They find missing people using this uh, drone cold case drone image search technique. One group, Western States Area Search, in cooperation with the Fowler Solar Foundation, which we'll probably talk about later, they have found four people using this technique since 2019.
1: I was talking to my boyfriend, Mark, about that very thing, and he said, thousands of photographs, that's crazy. And then he said, that sounds like that would be the kind of thing that we should be training AI for. Because wouldn't that be a much better use of AI's time rather than you know generating memes or giving high school students essays uh, on demand? Couldn't we be training AI how to identify these sorts of things in photos?
2: Yes, I believe so. I believe the AI at this point has some limitations. There's been a study; it shows that today with the software that humans could do it better, and quicker, with assimilated. Death scene is what I'm going to say. It's like bones of clothing. But there's promise. And I've talked to deep learning experts about this. Uh, They feel this is a solvable problem. Uh, But the AI has to look at thousands and thousands, like 10,000 images to learn. And Whereas a human, you can teach them this is what a femur looks like much quicker. But there's hope that we will eventually get there. Is it going to be one year, two year, or ten years? I don't know, but I do think there's hope that we can train AI, and AI can learn itself how to find clues during a cold case drone grid search. One thing
0: I was surprised by, and I learned that in your book, I didn't realize drones could be programmed to fly a grid pattern, which I know is that's searching one hundred one. I didn't realize that technology existed. It just never occurred to me, I've seen drones, but I'm always seeing locally here, a a person flying a drone using a handheld controller, so it's almost, it felt to me like those radio controlled airplanes that we'd play with when we were kids. Much more sophisticated and, and expensive, but that's what it felt like. I didn't realize that the drone could go up there and fly itself back and forth and do a grid pattern. And then come back to you with results. I didn't realize how sophisticated they've become.
2: Yes, and it's it, obviously it's getting you know, almost maybe exponentially sophisticated over time. Like I said, we only have a few people working on this technique. I'm hopeful we'll have more. Maybe a, a bigger companies doing this that can put more resources to it, or the government. But I've worked with the drone pilots. My husband is trained to do it. And I worked a case with him. And it's tedious for them as well. It's winters. It's a hard job. It's also for the drone pilot to establish their grid in the software and then to go out in the field and have the drone fly the grid and hopefully safely for the drone. If we lose a drone, it's not the end of the world. It's safer than losing a person and the aircraft, right? But they can totally do that. It's like self-driving cars. We're there. You just tell the drone where to go. It'll go. And as long as it doesn't hit an obstacle or bad weather or something, it'll do its job for you.
0: That does seem like a significant time saver. In other words, you can see the potential exists for drone search to be something that would be incredibly beneficial in some of these situations you're describing.
2: Yes, it's potentially a game changer, both for the hasty, immediately life-saving searches, and then also the cold case. These teams could do this very safely, and if they have the time, because it's not an urgent thing, an agency can assign a team to do this to try in an attempt to solve a cold case. Now, you need certain environments. If you're in a Everglades swamp where there's just a big overstory and you can't see down below, that, that's not going to be the great, a great case for a drone. Desert environments are awesome because there's cactus and you can see real easily on the spars- sparsely vegetated terrain. is. Uh, I think potentially fall zones below like scree slopes in the mountains also might be a great place for these drone grid searches.
1: Was there any other technology that you came across that you're particularly excited about as like a new innovation in search and rescue efforts? Or are drones really, that's the cool, that's where all the cool kids are looking these days?
2: I wish there were more cool kids looking into this drone thing. I think it's so tedious. Maybe you need the nerdy, the uncool ones working on it because they have the, the dedication to be obsessive and nerdy about it. But the other cool thing are the GPS units. So you've got your Garmin, your Spot, and these other emergency GPS locator devices. Those are going to get better and better quality. They're heavy right now. Like Apple phone is getting a GPS tracker. I think it's the, the 14s have it already. Mm-hmm. Also, AirTags, those Apple tags. I, I see we're going to soon get to a point where you can have one of those in your backpack or in your jacket. And it's just easily defined. An airplane could fly over, get a signal and find you. I think we're not far from that. So it will just be a matter of, does every hiker have one on their person or not? And it's possible. People will still get in trouble. They're still going to fall. They're still going to maybe die and get lost. But if they have one of these locator devices on them, that we will find them. We'll have fewer unsolved cases.
1: When we do have this technology, do you think it's something that everyone is going to be open to having on them? Or are there going to be hiking purists who are like, I'm not hiking with a cell phone. I'm not hiking with an air tag?
2: We're always going to have some outliers, but I think if the tag, the GPS tag, let's call it that, if it's lightweight enough and convenient and inexpensive, I think most your hikers will not have a problem carrying on, this. especially when they're familiar with the hardship that will occur to their family if they're not found. Yeah. When you're a hiker, I, I'm guilty of that a little bit. I'm like, hey, don't search for me. That's where I want to be. Leave me out there. But as being related to someone with an unsolved case, it's of the worst things that can happen mm-hmm. to a family member or loved one is to not know and to not have the answers that you want. And it's called ambiguous loss, especially with a missing person. You have no idea what happened to them or where they are. And so this is pretty hard for them. You do not want to do this to your family. If you need any motivation to have one of these GPS units, that should be it.
0: Yeah, ask your mom (laughs) (laughs) how she would feel if you went missing. It almost feels like a spiritual quest or something. And look, there's a lot of people that are out in the woods that are out there for renewal and relaxation. And they might actually say what you said, Andrea, which is, Hey, look, if I get lost, I was where I wanted to be and it's all good. Their moms and dads, brothers and sisters, their husbands, wives, partners might not feel the same way, particularly as the days and weeks. And in, in our example, months and years go by, it's hard so to be also, yeah. at the other yeah. end of that. Go ahead.
2: Yes. And with a missing person, there's the emotional thing, which is the worst, of course. But there's also legal and financial problems because the person can't be declared dead. And so if you're a breadwinner, that which ha- has happened. And so your uh, spouse can't get access to your insurance to take care of your kids because you're just missing. So it, it's a huge problem to have a family member that's missing on several different levels.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about that while you were using that example. I thought you're right. If someone went out, let's say, and they're the breadwinner and they've got a half a million dollar insurance policy, heaven forbid something happens to them. They want to make sure their spouse and kids are provided for. And a lot of times people I have a 25 year old son now who's in law school. When he was a little bit younger, my ex-wife and I would talk about we want to make sure that Chris has enough money to go to school or do whatever he wants to do. So there's always this provide for your family motivation, which I think is valid. And yet, if you go missing, you're absolutely right. The insurance company is not going to pay off. They're going to say, Joe or Jane could come through the door tomorrow and he or she will be fine. Or maybe they're in hiding or whatever. There's a lot of bizarre stories out there.
1: I want to shift back to Chris, David, and Sherpa for a a second. And I hope this doesn't come across as an indelicate question, but I think we can be frank about it. With regard to the missing men, is the goal now one of recovery or is it still a rescue operation? Do you think it's possible for any of the men to have survived for this long in the woods and it's just a matter of finding them? From a,
2: a professional searcher point of view, yes, it, it will definitely be recovery, and it's been that for a long time. This, a professional searcher starts to think recovery pretty quickly. There's something called the survival rule of threes. You can live... Three minutes without oxygen and three days without water and three weeks without food. And then shelter can be as short as three hours if it's freezing Mm -hmm. out or you're underwater and it's cold. This becomes a recovery situation fairly quickly. Now, with these cases, though, the hard part is, especially when you don't have answers and you don't have a body, is that could they possibly be voluntarily missing? You know, without spoiling it too much, one of the hikers in particular, it, there's a, some circumstances that suggest that it's possible that this is someone who just went voluntarily missing. You know, they you're you familiar with Chris McCandless in Alaska or yeah. Into the Wild. People go, did they go McCandless? Did they burn all their possessions and just go off and live under another name? It does happen. I do think that's the le- one of the least likely. There's a low percentage that happened, but it does remain an intriguing possibility uh, for me for
1: one of the missing. I, I was going to ask, do you think that is what happened to to Chris?
2: I don't have a firm this happened to any of them. Although sure, with, yeah. uh, Chris Fowler and David Sullivan, there were snowy conditions and cold conditions that lead me to think that was more likely an environmental accident occurred in their case. With uh, Chris Sylvia, I'm very much more perplexed.
0: Are there a lot of people hiking alone in America's wilderness?
2: Yes, I hike alone. And I'm not against uh, solo hiking. But then you'll hear you are slightly more at risk. If you're a solo hiker, you're slightly more at risk of trouble or to uh, die out there. Interestingly enough, these statistics are a little bit older, but a solo male is less likely to survive a perilous counter and outdoors than a solo female. So that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. So yes, there is more risk, but if you're a person who enjoys solitude and solo hiking, it's a risk worth taking. Now you can mitigate that risk by planning better. And then maybe not doing the hardest core mountain climbing thing alone, but go down to your local park for a few miles alone. That See what I mean? It's nuanced.
0: But yeah, a lot of
2: people, hikers love to go hike alone. Not all of them, but there are thousands, if not millions that do.
1: When you hiked the AT, were you by yourself, or did you have a uh, companion with you?
2: I I was a solo hike of the i Trail. I did that in 1999 before cell phones, Mm -hmm. smartphones, and I wanted to hike it alone. Now, these long-distance trails are a very social experience, though. There's a trail culture, and -hmm. there's also what they call the Tramily, the trail family, and people will look out for you and warn you. So, you know, today, you're probably not as alone as you want to be. You want to be more alone than you are because there's more crowds on the trails.
0: Do you want to fess up as to what your trail name was?
2: (laughs) Yes, it was Tennessee Walker. Tennessee Walker. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if you guys are hearing an accent. Uh, now
1: I'm from Tennessee. that's Tennessee. That sounds like a brand of alcohol. <laughs>
0: Get
2: a
1: bottle of it Tennessee a, yeah, well, it a, does. I think there's
2: a it horse. It from the horse, the Tennessee Walking Horses.
0: And even the whiskey, I think, is named for the Tennessee horse, Walking Horses. Yeah. By the way, we failed to ask you. I know you have a very proud history with the Park Service. Tell us your history about where you started with the Park Service, and some of the places you served.
2: Yeah, so I always wanted to work in the outdoors, and I loved animals, so I got a degree in forestry from the University of Tennessee. Pretty quickly got a job as a law enforcement park ranger at Cape Hatteras National Seashore in North Carolina. I wrote a book about this called Ranger Confidential, about my experience with the Park Service. From Cape Hatteras, I went to Zion National Park in Utah, then Yosemite National Park in California. And then I ended my career at Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona.
0: All of these places are so stone cold, beautiful. As you described each one briefly, I thought, oh, I'd want to be there. And then you move on to the next one. I'd be like, oh, no, I want to be there too. This had to be pretty amazing.
2: It was. I fell in love with it really quickly. You know, I was I, uh, idealistic about the job. But what happens? I was a protection ranger, and that's to protect the park from the people, protect the people from the park, and protect the people from each other. Park rangers <laughs> torn every which way, trying to protect everything. Things that sometimes they want to kill each other. You are caught in the middle. I was a, a protection ranger is often always does wildland fire, structural fire, uh, EMS. I was a medic and search and rescue, as we've talked about. So that's a lot of heavy duties on one set of shoulder for the
0: park ranger gee if i'm going to go hiking i'm going to ask you if i can go with you because i feel a lot safer (laughs) all the way around
2: there's a lot of experience there
1: before we go i want you to talk to us a little bit about the work that the fowler o'sullivan foundation is doing and how we can assist you and how our listeners can assist you in that work
2: yeah, that's one of the happy endings in Travel Loss is a foundation is created by Kathy Tarr, one of these quiet heroes, and it's called the Fowler O'Sullivan Foundation, named after Chris Fowler and David O'Sullivan. This foundation is dedicated to helping families of missing hikers and preventing hikers from going missing in the first place. They have a program where you can donate a GPS unit and they will give that in a lottery system to through hiker. So that through hiker that couldn't afford one. Can have one of these while they hike they also initiate searches they've found several people on their searches and they're searching for people today using this drone technique we talked about they have trained pilots that they've trained to do this and so yeah go check them out that's on f o f found Sounds amazing.
1: excellent and so what's next for you in terms of projects this is a this is a beautiful book very ambitious are you jumping right into something else or are you taking time to pursue other projects? I'm taking time off.
2: <laughs> I've it it, worked really hard on that book. i had some of my own adversity in the book, which I write about. And so I still help out with the foundation from time to time. And I, I've searched for uh, missing people from time to time. But I'm also taking a break to recover, rest and recover myself for now.
0: So does that mean you go for walks in the woods?
2: I go for walks alone in the woods, yes.
1: The book is Trail of the Lost, The Relentless Search to Bring Home the Missing Hikers of the Pacific Crest Trail. Andrea, where can everybody find your book? It's pretty much everywhere.
2: Definitely Amazon, your local book, favorite bookstore, you should be able to find it. Definitely, you can order it for sure.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Andrea. We love the book and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Y'all keep doing your good work. We will try. That is going to do it for this episode of Mind Over Murder. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mind Over Murder is a production of Absolute Zero and Another Dog Productions.
0: Our executive producers are Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley.
1: Our logo art is by Pamela Arnois.
0: Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod.
1: Mind Over Murder is distributed in partnership with Crawl Space Media.
0: You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.
1: You can also follow our page on the Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook.
0: And finally, you can follow Bill Thomas on Twitter at BillThomas56.
1: Thank you for listening to Mind Over Murder.